0: Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Valerie Lewis. Dr. Lewis is professor and chair of the Department of Orthopedic Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Her appointment to this position in 2014 was significant for many reasons as Dr. Lewis was the first woman to chair an orthopedic department at a freestanding cancer center. She was the first woman to chair an orthopedic department in the University of Texas system. And she was the first African-American woman to chair an orthopedic surgery department. I had a great time speaking with Dr. Lewis and I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Valerie Lewis. Dr. Valerie Lewis, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. My pleasure. I was hoping in your own words, you can describe your background, where your hometown, college, med school, residency, fellowship, and beyond.
1: Awesome. Well, I grew up in New York, and even though I've lived in Texas for 20 years now, I'm still a diehard New Yorker. Um, I grew up in the Bronx. I was the third of three girls. My dad was a physician as well. And my mom had a master's in education. Um, I went to the same school from pre-kindergarten to 12th grade, Fieldston, which was an amazing uh, private school in New York. And some of my best friends are still from that school. I went to Yale, which I loved. It's funny, I have twins and neither of them chose to apply to Yale. So I'm devastated, but I had a great time uh, at Yale. I was in JE and it was great. I then went to Harvard Medical School, which I loved. It was a great fit for me. Um, that was like the second year of the new pathway, so we only had class till twelve, and then we got to take electives in the afternoon. And I still remember my sociology of medicine elective, but it was great. At the same time, it offered you the opportunity to, you know, do extra work. So even though anatomy was really only six weeks, most of the so who went into surgery did it, you know, like for the half of the year, and the instructors were really helpful. They were very, very, um, they developed a really great community. Uh, one of the high points of my career is I went back two or three years ago and I was a visiting professor there for three days and gave a talk. And it was great to have my old professors come to my lecture and okay. time with them. And it was fabulous. Um, and they really made a huge impact um, on my life. Then I was in the Harvard residency program. Um, and really under the mentorship of Henry Macon, who's truly one of the giants of orthopedics, uh, and Dempsey Springfield, who to this day is one of my favorite people. They were incredible surgeons and incredible role models. And then I did my fellowship in Chicago with Mike Simon and Terry Peabody. And then actually Anderson was my first job out of residency. And I said, I was only gonna be here for five years and I would go back to the city. Um, New York. And I am here on my 21st year at, in Texas. So I was wow. quite traumatic for everyone in my family that I was moving down to Texas. You know, <laughs> I could have said I was moving to like Yugoslavia and they would have accepted that more than me moving down to Texas. But it's been a great, it's been a great life. Um, I love MD Anderson and, you know, working here and raising kids here has been a great experience.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And I do, I do, my understanding is that there is a story with you and your mom when you were deciding between Yale and then going to Harvard for your residency.
1: It was actually, so in college. So I was the third girl. My oldest sister went to University of Pennsylvania. My middle sister uh, went to Amherst. So that's kind of like the little IVs. My sister went to Penn and Mm -hmm. my mom just really wanted me to go to Harvard. Um, So I was deciding between Harvard and Yale. And we got into an argument. That was the days when you had to like mail in your acceptance. So we went down right. to Manhattan to mail in my acceptance. We got in an argument. I went into the post office and I came out in the car, and she was like, "Where did you decide to go?" And so I said Yale because I went there to spite her. And she started crying and crying. <laughs> and so I promised that I would go to Harvard Medical School. So really, I only had one choice. But then senior year came around, and my mom's like, "How's your applications?" I am like, "Ugh." Only Harvard did you have to pay for the application, not pay to submit it, but you'd have to pay before you got the application. I was like, ah, I'm not doing that. Five days later, the application ended up on my doorstep. My mom had paid for it and then I applied and I didn't have any choice. So that's where I ended up going to medical school, really. So, you know, my mom would yeah. finally have someone at Harvard. But yeah. And they were both <laughs> great choices. Yale was a great undergrad. Right. I actually went to my family reunion and just took a friend of mine from Yale. So we've made some lifelong friendships, but Harvard was a fabulous medical school. Um, and it really fit me well. So.
0: Oh, that's a great story. I know I heard that story. And I'm like, Oh, it must be told again. It was so good. Um, I know that you said that your father's a physician, your mother, um, is, you know, in education and such, but I was curious if you could describe when was the point that you wanted to do orthopedic surgery and why?
1: Well, it's funny because I've always wanted to be a physician. I mean, I had the plan. I was going to be a physician Monday through Friday like my dad. I was going to be a carpenter on Saturdays because I really loved carpentry and working from my hands. And then I was going to own a gas station on Sundays because that was the day when, I mean, those are the days when you had full service. No one got out of your car. And I always want to wipe the windows. And my mom is oh my like, God. you're not getting out of this car. So I was like, I'm <laughs> buying a gas station and I'll be doing all the windows. So that was the plan like since I was five. So I think I'd be have more money, but less fulfillment if I had owned a gas station. But um, <laughs> I ended up going to medical school. And I just, I always loved working with my hands and I loved orthopedics. I loved the immediate gratification of solving a problem and it impacting the patient. Like we could do something where the patient walks the next morning, uh, the next moment. Right. Right. But I always wanted to be a surgeon. So I really didn't narrow it down until third year medical school. And I did my rotation at Mass General. And, you know, I spent time on different services, but I spent like 10 days with Henry Mankin and Dempsey Springfield. Dempsey Springfield was just amazing. He was just awe inspiring. He was an amazing surgeon. He was a great Mm -hmm. doctor, but I mean, he was incredibly well read. He was just, and I laughed at his, you know, hobby for the rest of his life then became writing me recommendations because he really became one of my mentors. And I think so it was really third year medical school that I decided on orthopedics and I decided on orthopedic oncology at the same time. I mean, I looked at ophthalmology um, and my rotation was supposed to be a month and then it was only two weeks and I went to Mardi Gras So we crossed that one out. I wanted to go into gyn oncology for a minute, but this sounds terrible as a woman. But it was just too many secretions; like I just couldn't take gyn oncology. <laughs> uh, and then general surgery, you know, pus and poo, I just didn't like. Yep, yeah, it's poop everywhere. Yes, it's just pus. Anyway, and orthopedics was awesome. And then orthopedic oncology, I love it that there's no one surgery that's the same. I mm-hmm. operate everywhere in the body, and literally except for the chest, right? Um, right. And you have the combination between medicine and surgery. So I develop lifelong relationships with these patients, uh, but at the same time have the gratification of changing their lives and getting them up and walking and moving again. We kind of coined the phrase at Anderson that we keep kids running, right? So we get these little kids and our goal, I mean, my big goal, I always say to the parents is to get them grandkids, right? To get the kids old enough to, you know, Graduate from college, graduate from graduate school, then start dating, then get engaged, and then get married. So, we're already thinking, you know, 30 years down the road, but we do it in a fashion that they can run or, you know, be incredibly active. So, that's Mm -hmm. really why I liked orthopedic oncology. And then secretly, I wanted to be Dempsey Springfield, right? I wanted to be incredibly talented and really good at patient care and, you know, changing the field and that type of thing. So, it was third year of medical school.
0: That's amazing. And I know that you, as an orthopedic oncologist, are just a prolific researcher with everything that you've done. Um, and you, what's interesting, with I think, with your track is that you've done both basic as well as clinical research, and you've kind of excelled in both. And I was ho- hoping you can just describe your research journey, your research career. Like, when did it first start out? Did you start out doing both basic and clinical, or did you first do basic and then... Or has your you know research just kind of morphed over the years? I think it's a bl- blend of both. You know, as an academician, as an academic orthopedic
1: surgeon, you do do clinical research, especially in oncology and especially in orthopedics. You know,
0: right. I
1: do laugh. It's like you know our our last thirty cases of something is the big orthopedic oncology paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started in medical school. I worked uh, did a thesis, and I worked in Judah Folkman's lab, who was an amazing. A researcher and really very astute thinker. And so I kind of got the bug. I took a year off of medical school and spent a year in his lab and then ended up working there for the rest of medical school. And so that was really just bench research, basic mm-hmm. science. And then in during the residency, I took a, a year off because in the old Harvard residency, you could do like five and a half or six years. So I oh, did wow. it in six and... Um, which now seems like forever, but I spent time in the lab there in bench research. And then when I got to Anderson, I also went into the lab again, which was a little bit more challenging because I didn't, it was hard to have protected lab time, even though you did. So I did a lot of research like starting at five. So from five to seven, I'd be in the lab and then I would be there in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Um, And looking back, that's hard to juggle because I'm a surgeon because I love to operate. So where do I prefer to be in the operating room? Right. But judah folkman made the analogy is you know as a surgeon if the sink is overflowing you bail out the sink right but as a physician scientist if a sink is overflowing you then bend down and turn off the water that's even flowing into the sink so i like looking at the problems and seeing if we can you know solve the problems that we're dealing with surgically Mm -hmm. um so that's where i did the basic science research and then clinical research is really every day. Like we have fellows, we have questions, clinical questions that need to be addressed. And in oncology, sometimes you just need clinical questions that need to be evaluated or to look at. You know, we have to evaluate what we're doing to see if we're actually doing a good thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. surgeons base their next case off their last case. And that's not a good way to be. That's totally the way <laughs> we are, right? But, you know, if we can critically evaluate our outcomes, then we'll see whether we really should be doing something. So, I think most orthopedic oncologists at least do clinical research, but quite a few people do that translational research as well.
0: Mm, That's awesome. What has been your, I know this might be a hard question, but what has been your favorite area of research to do?
1: Things that work. I mean, honestly, (laughs) I mean, that sounds, you know, a bit facetious or silly, but one thing about research is you can, do experiment, do experiment, do experiment, have a hypothesis and it not work and you get discouraged. And then you have one experiment that works and it like pushes you forward for the next few months. And that's how I feel like my research has been is, you know, discouragement, discouragement, discouragement. Oh my God, I cured cancer. And then discouragement, discouragement, discouragement. So I do, you know, I like obviously working with my hands, even in the lab. Um, but it, at this point, it's when I can prove my hypothesis, nothing feels better than that. And that's either a big experiment or, you know, a lot of experiments put together. But, you know, I sometimes feel like research is an exercise in futility, right? We're doing the same thing mm-hmm. over and over and hoping to get a different outcome. But yeah.
0: Nice. I was hoping, you know, it's very hard for some of us to do this, but I was hoping you can humble brag and kind of speak about some of the research accomplishments that you've had over the years.
1: Yeah, no, I'm terrible at that. (laughs) (laughs) I think for the research, my favorite thing is that I got the cover of cancer research. Oh, wow. uh, I don't know about seven years ago. And so that's like my publishing high point. It's a pretty, it's a, picture of a osteosarcoma growing in a mouse tibia. Wow. So yeah, that was, that was a great
0: feeling. How, what what was the breakthrough with that project?
1: So um, taking a few steps back, we actually took a patient who was dying and injected a phage library and then looked at where these phages home. So each on each phage, was there a small peptide? And it was kind of like, if you had a big peptide or a protein, and then we would just take that piece of that protein put it on the phage and then inject it in. And we looked to where the phage homed. So where mm-hmm. do these peptides bind? So then we found that this small peptide bound to the IL-11 receptor. And mm-hmm. then we found that this IL-11 receptor was expressed in osteosarcoma, but it was mm-hmm. also differentially expressed, i.e. it was more expressed in the metastasis than it was in the primary tumor mm-hmm. by our thought processes because the lesions... The cells that had the expression were the cells that metastasizing. So what I showed in this paper is that I could c- create a protein with that little piece of that IL-11 peptide, imita- mimicking peptide, to the protein and then inject it in the mouse and then it would home to the osteosarcoma. At the time, we injected something called clack clack, which was a protein that when internalized by the cell would then kill the cells. So, in theory, it was targeted therapy for the osteosarcoma. So, regular chemotherapy, the side effects are cumulative. This wouldn't be cumulative because it would just be attacking the tumor. So, that was the article that showed
0: that. Wow, that's amazing! That's awesome. And then i was hoping you can just describe some of your advice for those you know young researchers either they be young attendings or you know physicians residents those sorts of folk who are interested in research for their career
1: <laughs> do clinical research no i'm joking um
0: <laughs> but really <laughs> so set up
1: set up time and it's funny because our new fellows just started and set time in your day just to think because I don't think you can solve every problem if you don't have time to think about it. And, you know, you can have great thoughts at two o'clock in the morning and then you wake up and you don't remember. You just remember you had a great thought, or you could jot it down and it's gibberish. But uh, one of my co-residents told me that he, you know, blocks some time of the day. So from eight to noon on Thursdays, he's not in the office and he's not at home. Um, and no one can, no one can steal that time away from him and his secretary Mm -hmm. won't let he himself steal that time. And that's the time he thinks. you can think about the day, you can think about research ideas, you can then look at research ideas, you know, do literature searches and kind of look at what's being written. And that time will give you time to kind of see what you think the big problems in your subspecialty are. And then once you Mm -hmm. have that time to think, you then can go to the next step. But if you're always running, whether always in the or, or in clinic or, on random committees that you always get put on as junior faculty, you won't have that time to think. And if you really like research, budget that research time into your schedule. Like doing research from five to eight and then from eight to five is a terrible way to live. So budget that time in the schedule. And the hardest person to protect time from when you're a junior faculty is yourself, because you'll always add on that case, you'll always extend your clinic. But if this is what you want to be successful in, this is what you should budget your time for.
0: Hmm. that's amazing. Um, I do want to kind of go into how you've blazed the trail while you've been at MD Anderson. And, and just for our listeners, um it's this list is so extensive where you were the the Dr. John Murray Professor in Orthopedic Oncology in 2010 you were the first African American woman to be awarded the MD Anderson Faculty Achievement Award in patient care in 2012 you were the first woman to chair an orthopedic department at a freestanding cancer center in 2014 um you were the first woman to chair an orthopedic department in the University of Texas system in 2014 and you were the first African-American woman to chair an orthopedic surgery department, period. I was hoping you can talk about what these accomplishments mean to you and specifically what it means to you to be the first African-American woman to chair an orthopedic surgery department.
1: You know, th- those are, I think those are great questions. Um, I think on, I always laugh on the one hand, my mom's very happy because she loves to talk about her girls so she has something valid to talk about (laughs) on the other hand i mean we always i mean as a woman orthopedic surgeon what are we seven percent of orthopedics yes so when you hold these leadership positions you are putting yourself out there or making yourself visible for people to realize that they can do it too Mm -hmm. um and it's funny, giving talks, especially to young people these days, they talk about your journey, your vision, that type of thing. I feel like I didn't have a huge vision when I started. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and I love oncology. Right. Um, but I never doubted that I could do it. And it was, that was never an issue in our house. You know, if I wanted to be a, you know, gorilla trainer, I would, at, my parents were like, of course, go be a gorilla trainer. If I wanted to be an astronaut, ah, go to be an astronaut. And so I think when I'm out there, it shows other women, you can do it. Like, just think you could do it, work hard and you can do it. Like, it's not, I'm not saying it's not challenging. I'm not saying that you won't have biases, microaggressions, blah, 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 all that vocabulary that kids use these days, but you'll overcome it and do it if you really work hard and want to do it. So, Right. um for me it's important to be out there so i actually had two different meetings with little mentees today and they see they see me as a chair of orthopedics and so they know that they can do it too and right. i think that's really important for women i mean i had great mentors in residency but once again they were white males they were just fabulous yes. and i didn't have a woman mentor at all when i was young and so you know i hope whether actually mentoring people or them just seeing me speaking and that type of thing it makes women, African-Americans, and generally everybody realize that if you work really hard and you want something, you can do
0: it. Amazing. What advice do you have for those who are hoping to climb the academic ladder? You know, those junior faculty who are just one day just supporting to, you know, not only survive, but thrive in that academic setting. So even though I said I didn't have a plan, I think it
1: is good to sit down and have a plan. I think one of the things I do with my faculty is where do you want to be in one year, five year, ten years? And it is a painful exercise, but it gets you thinking, especially when you have to turn it into someone. So I think thinking what you want to be in one year, five years and ten years is really important. I laugh because my boss asked me that and I was like, I'm totally planning to win lotto and I'm still looking for the perfect person. (laughs) But it's important to sit and think where you want to go. And then once you know where you want to go, it's good to craft your path to get you there. Um, And I don't think your path has to be a straight line. I give this one talk where I show like, you know, here I am now, here I am there and there's a perfect path. But really my path was very circuitous, you know, I kind of wandered off it, you know, I looked around and then got to my place. So I don't think you have to be so laser focused that you don't try other things or experience life, Um, but it's good to have an end, you know, an end game in mind. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so sit down and spend that time and think where you want to be. It's also totally okay to change your mind, right? So my husband and I always argue because I have like, I know what I'm doing, you know, this day in 2025. And he's like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, no, it's not. Because I'm totally happy to change it if something better comes. But if something doesn't come along, I already have a plan to get where I'm going. So I think it's good to plan, but still be flexible enough that you can change it. But it's better to have a plan just to wander aimlessly. Because I do think, as people who chances are they'll have children, you do have less time than people who don't necessarily have that huge time suck that children are. And, you know, I'm not saying, yeah, yeah, guys these days spend a lot of time, but I think women do spend a lot of time with their kids and a lot of responsibilities still fall on them, even with the changing roles and such. And you have less time. Like I, my husband's a radiation oncologist at Anderson. Um, and he's great. Oh, wow. But I would say still a lot of the, you know, day to day immediate parenting duties does fall to me. So I have less time. So if you have a plan, you can kind of maximize the time you have. Right. And as far as have having- you ever
0: collaborated with him?
1: No, I actually won't even let him put a consult in my clinic.
0: Um <laughs> so yes we do
1: have a couple papers together like one or two but yeah we clinically i won't even let him put a consult in my clinic but yes
0: (laughs) oh my god that's amazing oh gosh um i do know that kind of shifting topics you've talked about many of the lectures that you've given Um, I was hoping that you can talk about one of the lectures that you've given with regard to the history of the African-American physician in the United States. Um, And I was hoping that you can provide just a brief synopsis of this lecture, as well as just kind of the overall message that you deliver as well.
1: Well, it's hard to, honest, I I saw the question. It's hard to provide a synopsis of the lecture, except there are now African-American sexual physicians. That right. has been a long haul. And I think that, the, I mean, honestly, there were always a few, but getting general acceptance was hard. Getting general education was hard. It was an upward battle. And there were a lot of laws um, erected to not to benefit the African-American physician. And I think it's important history because if you think of the AMA, they actually issued a formal apology to African-American physicians because they were not um, supportive um, at all, you know, back in the 60s during civil rights. Um, But I also think it's a testament to perseverance and hard work. Um, And I think by giving the lecture, it made me really proud that I was a part of that albeit small community of African-American physicians, but it also showed me a lot like what my dad went through. So my dad has passed now, but he would be 92. And just to imagine what training was like 70 years ago uh, versus training now, um, it was very eye-opening. And I think you truly had to persevere if you wanted to go into medicine. Um, And I think it was a passion uh, back then, but it was also a desire to help your, it was a desire to help your people because, you know, back then, like 70 years ago, your clientele was somewhat homogeneous, right? There were very few Caucasians who went to African-American doctors. Um, so not only was it your passion for medicine, but it was a desire to give back to your community.
0: Right. I remember I, um, I had the very, very good fortune of being able to interview Dr. Claudia Thomas on, on this podcast and just I mean, she is such an inspirational force and just a force in general and just listening to her stories and the things that she had to do just on a day-to-day basis, I don't even think I would have the courage to do now. Like I remember she was talking about how Um, she didn't have a locker to be able to change in like it was either like it was doctors and it was nurses and she literally didn't have she didn't fit either because the nurses locker room was for women and the doctor's locker room was men only yeah so she literally my life when
1: i came to Anderson i i changed in the surgeon's lounge for like the first year and a half
0: right yeah and it's just and she literally just waltzed into the the doctor's locker room and as there's like half naked men everywhere right. and she just started you know changing and they're like okay 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 you know what i mean and it's just like i like i for the life of me i would never be able to do such a thing even like thinking about today and and those sorts of things so i think you're right it's it's just so remarkable that you know what those folks had to go through during that time period and even now i think it's it's sort of kind of this you know one of the things i wanted to talk about was that um, I also was able to speak to Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason with regard to kind of she came to our ground rounds and talking about how, you know, the speaking about diversity has become this popular movement. And it was such a weird turn of phrase, but it was so true how, you know, just kind of with the things that have happened nowadays where it's, it's something that's popular to talk about diversity. And it's just, it's, it's this weird thing where it's like, is it appropriate that it's popular? Do we want it to be popular? What if happens if it's the fad is no longer popular, so to speak? You know?
1: No, I know. Exactly. I know. I, I know what you're saying. One, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? So yeah. everyone should be aware of it, but oh my God, we get tired of talking about it. Right. So there was a great All article. Right. So the swimmer, um, she's an Olympic swimmer, Simone... African-American went to Stanford um, and it's like what she goes through and I'm spacing on her name as the only African-American like Olympic swimmer it's like all that and she's an Olympic swimmer and so sometimes you feel that oh my god if one more person says anything about diversity inclusion and equity to me I'm going to stab them in the eye like can I just go and operate and be a doctor and be a you know surgeon but on the other hand thank god they're talking about it and you know it's something that people realize that we have to do and it's an important inclusion. There's a great book and it's like, why well, I don't wanna talk about diversity anymore. Um, because sometimes you feel that, and actually there there is something that's called the black tax, right? So as an African-American in academia, you are responsible not only for whatever you're doing clinically, but also for what's going on in the institution, in the department, in the world, when it comes to black people. And mm-hmm. sometimes you just want to be a doctor, like I, you know, it's been a long day. I don't need to, you know, represent everybody in the world, um, you know, regarding whatever new issue it is with African Americans. On the other hand, you know, if I want to be the ruler of African Americans, that'd be perfect. But no, on a serious note, you, it's it adds an extra dimension that most people don't have that sometimes can weigh heavy. You know.
0: No, I agree. I agree. I think it's it's something where you know, whether, whatever minority group that you're in, I feel like you're almost, you're representing the entirety of your group. Right. And I think it's, it's something that it's, it's not like a, like a microaggression, but I think you're right. It, it, it's, it's that this, it's this extra weight, Yeah, you know what I mean? Where, um, I remember when I was doing consults, you know, last year and, and overnight, I remember feeling like I was responsible for, representing female orthopedic surgeons to the best of my ability and like making sure um like i was like every single dislocation like i needed to be able to put this back right because for the life of me i'm not going to be that one like female physician that like oh she's not strong enough to be able to put this thing back or whatever and i'm just like no all the women are counting on me right now i must do it
1: no, it's true. And then you're the authority. You're the authority on women. You're the authority on like LGBTE. You're the authority on yes. black. And you're like, you know what? I spoke to them all. La-. And I actually said this at one thing of residency. I spoke to them all last night and we think this. And then they realize how ridiculous it is that they're asking me one question about all black people. Like, really? <laughs> Let's just move on. So I think, you know, you can get around it a little bit with humor, but you know, sometimes it gets tiring. But on the other hand, I acknowledge that what I do is important. It does reflect on other women um, and other African-Americans. And I mean, it's the same thing I teach my kids. Like people will look at you a little bit different than they look at everyone else. And you're going to have to work a little bit harder than everyone else. And it, you know, don't boo-hoo over it. It's just a fact of life. Work harder and then go on from there. And hopefully your kids won't have that issue. But clearly in the US, women, minorities, LB, everyone, who, you know, is different from the majority is going to have to, is going to be looked at differently. And so I think you just accept it, work hard and move on.
0: Yeah. Well done. Um, I know we've talked a lot about what you've done in the past, um, but I was hoping you can also describe what your future goals and projects are clinically, research, various organizations. I know you're booked until 2025. So I was hoping you can kind of go into some of the things that you're doing. Well, um,
1: As far as doing, I just got on the board of the Academy. Um, Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. And that's been a great experience uh, so far. Uh, Danny Guy's our president, and he's incredibly thoughtful. And he runs a great meeting. I mean, it's so funny. One thing that you have to be is open to learn from everyone, even if, you know, you don't expect it. And he really runs a really great, inclusive, thoughtful meeting. Um, So I'm excited for that. I'm excited to be on the board and, you know, potentially steer our academy into the next steps. Um, That being said, when you join the board of the academy, you have to step down from everything else. So one of the Mm -hmm. sad things I stepped down for is International Society of Limb Salvage, which is ISOLs. I was on the board and chair of the education committee. And um, that was a great experience. We started a webinar during covid because it's even harder for that meeting to occur because it's everybody, you know, all orthopedic oncologists in the world. And the webinar actually has been very well received um, and that that's a great experience. And I love the collaborations um, that it is, first on the board, because it's people from different countries and then on the education committee. But I'm looking forward to my years on the board.
0: That's exciting. Um, and Dr. Lewis, I know that you have many places to be and things to do. So I was hoping we can go into the final five, which are the last five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my number one final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why?
1: Okay, so honestly, my favorite procedure is to perform is lipomas because they're straightforward, small incision, you take it out, there's nothing more satisfying. The fellows are not allowed to scrub because they're the most awesome procedure. But the procedure actually, <laughs> what we're known for <laughs> is hemipelvectomies. Yep. So um, I really like them. I enjoy them. Um, I like the dissection. It's meticulous dissection often for hours. Um, the anatomy is always different because the tumor distorts the anatomy and also all the anatomies there. Like when you're in the pelvis, everything is there. The aorta, the IVC, the common, you know, the ureters, the bladder, the prostate, everything is there. Um, and I, and I really like it. Um, we did one yesterday and we did one Thursday. So we do note for you. We do do a lot of hemipelpectomy. So the yes. experience here will be great in that, but I really like it. And you know, I'm not a religious person, um, but when I'm in the pelvis, if you take a moment, it's like, there has to be a higher power. There's no way that humans can function with this. When you have the pelvis open, it's just unbelievable. I am in mean, it, it I'm in awe of the human body uh, when you're in the pelvis. Um, And then our outcomes are great. Um, And I laugh, I say, because we're great surgeons. It's really because we have fabulous physical therapists who are dedicated to our pelvis patients. But that is my favorite surgery. So the majority of the people are walking unassisted, irrespective of how we put them back together. Um, And I I like that. No two surgeries are the same. And I do kids as young as eight months to adults as old as 80 so you have the whole gambit uh, of surgeries and you know even the two are who are in-house one's a girl of 11 or 12 and the other one's a man in his you know 60s their surgeries were totally different even though they were kind of lopped under the the you know
0: right same.
1: pulvectomy so that yeah. that's really my favorite surgery
0: wow oh, that's amazing Uh, What are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations or invited speaking engagements?
1: Um, Hemipelvectomy. So (laughs) we did, uh, we actually did some great functional outcomes on these patients more than the MSTS score, which I am biased, but it's terrible. Um, So we actually looked at some physical therapy functional outcome scores and shows that these patients with even without reconstruction are doing very well functionally. Um, so I do do a lot of talking on hemipelvectomies. And then lately, because I feel like the mod question for people to ask you is your journey. So I talk about my journey, which is a little bit different from, you know, your run of the mill. I played football in college and now I'm orthopedic surgeon. So, um, uh, yeah, those are kind of my two main topics and I'll do like, uh, the growing child in cancer
0: my number three question for you is what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon?
1: Okay. So I, have two. well, I think one my, good. one of my favorite stories is it was before the 80 hour work week. And so when you were in the Harvard program, when you were chief, you were actually a trauma attending. You weren't a resident. You were like an instructor at Harvard medical school. And, you know, you look back now and it's horrific that they did that. But so I was chief at the general and we had been operating for 40 hours. I hadn't been home. We'd been in the operating room. And right before we sat, did our last case, we were sitting in the operating room, drinking ginger ale and eating Milky Way bars. And just, we, it just was unbelievable. And we were saying, you know, we could not believe that we were still here, but we had such a camaraderie with the service that we were working with. The patient, you know, did really, really well, but probably there is the reason for the 80-hour work week. But uh, one of the things I loved about residency and the Harvard program is that we had great camaraderie among the residents. And, you know, I hate the team analogy, but you really felt like you were part of a team and part of a group. And mm-hmm. so that's one of my fond memories
0: about residency oh that's nice yeah no I've I have a good crew my crew like my my class right. we're one of the, like not to say that we're the best class to come out of Yale but we're pretty <laughs> close up there, there you go. um and it's great like we have a text thread and everything yeah. and, and all that so no so just, keep it it's...
1: alive because we were all at each other's weddings and so yeah yes, definitely keep it alive
0: yeah, they actually, the they the four of them, they came to my wedding. One of them was on call, and so we had him on a on phone. Oh, my God. And so we awesome. were able to get, like, a picture of us and everything. So it was, it was really cute. Um, what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine?
1: Um, watching my kids play. So Olivia is a soccer player and going to her games, and Isabella plays tennis. So it's watching them compete but then spending time with them. Um, I feel like I'll have new hobbies as they both leave to school and I'll be an empty nester, but I really, so much of your time right now through high school and middle school is monopolized by your kids and I'm going to miss it so much. Um, I also love arts and crafts. So I love, especially, you know, senior year, we were room mom, the girls were captains. So we were captain's mom. We did so many arts and crafts and that goes back to working with your hands. Right. So I love working with wood and, and building things. So, combination of watching my kids and then
0: doing arts and crafts. And oh, that's exciting. And my final question for you, Dr. Lewis, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training?
1: Orthopedic surgeons in training, um, remember the end game that um, We always laugh, like when you were really working hard and you were so tired, you are like, ugh, well I quit? But really, do you wanna quit and just be known as the intern? Never. So remember where you wanna be and then work towards that. Um, Also remember you're taking care of patients. You're taking care of other people's mothers, other people's fathers. So really, attention to patient care is of the utmost importance. Um, It's really important that you push yourself to be the best doctor you can be and the best doctor that your patient has. So you remember uh, the whole picture. And I think that goes both to orthopedic surgeons in training as well as orthopedic surgeons. There's no great case um, or crazy case. It's a person. And I think it's really important uh, to remember that. Um, And really, I laugh because my dad ended every conversation we had until he passed was study hard and get good grades. So as ortho residents, read what you're doing learn what you're doing and then, you know, attention to details and study hard. And even, you know, as attendings, it's constantly review uh, and, you know, kind of taking it to the next step. Mm-hmm. And to women, or the orthopedic surgeons and residents or African-American, um, it's okay to be uncomfortable because you're not growing unless you're comfortable, unless you're uncomfortable. If you're totally comfortable, then you're the status quo and that's never where you want to be. You always want to be pushing yourself to be better.
0: Amazing. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for your time. I really, really, really do appreciate you speaking with us today. And I sincerely wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing.
1: Absolutely. And I wish you the best of luck.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Valerie Lewis. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.